Good morning, church. Again, good to have every one of you here with us. Uh, I just want you to know I miss you. I miss seeing your faces. I miss being here together with you. Uh, to all of our guests who have joined us online, uh, family members and friends, maybe someone invited you uh, near and far, I want to extend to you a special welcome as well. We are on week seven of not gathering together as a church, and uh, that's been hard on a number of levels. Uh, but I can honestly say that I have seen our church shine, shine the love of Christ in beautiful and extraordinary ways during this time. Uh, you saw the, the quick video earlier of the Bowie Food Pantry drop-off and, and so many people sharing uh, for those in need. Many of you have given to the Benevolence Fund here so that we can help those who are, who are dealing with the, the illness and, and those who are dealing with the economic impact of this, uh, of this virus. Uh, those of you who have steady income have continued to give faithfully and generously so that the ministry of this church can continue. We're able to pay all the staff and all of our missionaries, 40 plus missionaries around the world. Uh, members are calling members. Meals are being made for the, those who are sick and recovering. And uh, these and devotionals that we're doing, video devotionals and our services are literally reaching people all around the world more than maybe we've ever had before. And so I just want to say a huge thank you to you, our church family, our Grace family. Again, we love you and miss you. And we look forward to the day when we can gather again soon. Our prayer is that it will be soon. We jumped back into the book of Genesis uh, last week in this series on the life of Joseph. It's the last portion of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we're looking at Joseph's life. And the, the subtitle of this series is uh, Trusting the Goodness of God. Trusting the Goodness of God. You see, Joseph had to learn to trust the goodness of God when life was really hard. When he lost so much of what he valued and loved. And I, I think it's a fitting series for us because... We too must learn how to trust the goodness of God in the midst of a pandemic. When a virus upends every aspect of our lives and threatens every, every part of the way we do life, can we trust the goodness of God now? And so today's message, based on the reading you just heard from Genesis 43, God's gift of mercy for our broken relationships. Mercy. We don't really use that word nowadays. We, we like the word compassion, but the word mercy is, has incredible significance in the Bible because, for one, it's one of the essential attributes of God. When God reveals himself to, to Moses in Exodus 34, when Moses says, show me your glory, show me who you are, God says, okay, I'm going to reveal myself, I'm going to hide you in the, in the rock, and I'm going to uh, pass by you in all my glory. And then he reveals his character, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness. Merciful is the very first attribute that he, that he declares of himself. Mercy, maybe a definition will help as we get started. Mercy is showing compassion and forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it. Or even more specifically, to someone whom you could punish. So if my kids 
leave all of their toys out in our living room. We live in a rancher, so there's kind of one living space. And if they were, which they, they, they're definitely not doing this now, so you know, don't, don't feel bad for us. We, we don't have toys everywhere. But let's just say in, in, a, in a world where we're stuck in a house and we can't leave every single day, just imagine a world like that and all the toys everywhere. And we say to them, listen, pick up your toys at the end of the day so we can kind of you know, start afresh each day. Uh, and, and, if you, and they don't do that. And we tell them repeatedly, please clean up your toys. I'm tired of stepping on Legos. I'm tired of limping, okay? Please pick them up. Please pick up the trains. And they don't do that. And then I say, if you don't pick up all these toys, I'm going to take them away. You're not going to be able to have them for weeks. And then they don't pick up their toys. Justice would say, do what you say. Gather up these toys, throw them in the closet, and be done for weeks. Mercy, and that would be right and fair and just. Mercy would be sitting down with them, talking through it, and say, listen, we got to find a way to move forward with this. I'm going to still let you have your toys. Let's clean them up together. When is the last time you showed mercy to someone? Some of us are living in close quarters with family members or roommates, and we're stuck spending lots of time with each other. And what does that lead to? Yes, hopefully lots of good things. But it might also lead to frustration, hurt feelings, being offended by someone else. But to show mercy to someone is costly, isn't it? Others of us are spending time alone at home. Maybe you're feeling isolated physically and emotionally from others. That can be hard in another way too because it can lead to, to lots of time to think and, and it can lead to a lot of negative thoughts about other people in your life. A lot of negative thoughts maybe even of yourself. And you can get down on yourself or you can start to ruminate on what other people have done to, to hurt you or to offend you. And you have an opportunity now to show mercy to others who are far from you and even mercy to yourself. I want to show you this morning how the life of Joseph how in the life of Joseph, God's mercy is on display to broken people and, and how God's mercy brings healing to flawed relationships. That that is a possibility. We already heard, thank you Jim, for, for reading Genesis 43. Let's jump right in. Hopefully you have a Bible in front of you. Children, if you're out and you're looking kind of for a, a picture to write, you can draw a picture of Joseph and his brothers, maybe all of them kneeling down to him, or, or maybe all of them at a feast, at a, at a, a big a wedding banquet, a, a party, feasting on good food. Here's lesson number one. In mercy... God will often use the trials of life to reveal the idols of your heart. In mercy, God will often use the trials of life to reveal the idols of your heart. Notice verse 1. The chapter begins by reminding us of the crisis that Jacob and his family find themselves in. Notice it says, Now the famine was severe in the land. The famine was going on for two years so far, and it's not getting any better, it's getting worse. And we find in verse 2 that all the food that the brothers had acquired in Egypt on their first trip to Egypt, now all that food is, was eaten. It's gone. And they're in the midst of a serious disaster. This famine is threatening to, to cause this family to starve to death. It's not hard for us to relate to what they're going through right now, is it? A major crisis with far-reaching impact on mortality and the economy. Sound familiar? But Jacob knows 
All hope is not lost. There's still grain in Egypt. We've gotten word that somehow Egypt still has food. Let's, let's get the, the food from Egypt. The problem is the, the trip, the first trip to Egypt that the sons make was not a great experience. In fact, it had rattled them to the core. Because upon their arrival in Egypt the first time, they were accused of being spies by this man who was the prime minister of Egypt. He was second in command only to Pharaoh. And they have no idea that the man they're standing up in front of is actually their very brother, Joseph. The very same Joseph who, had, who they despised as a kid because he was daddy's favorite son and, and he was spoiled with a fancy coat and, and he went around giving bad reports about his brothers. It's the same Joseph who wouldn't stop telling him about his dreams that all his family would be bowing down to him. It's the same Joseph whom the brothers hated so much they decided to strip off that fancy coat one day, throw him into a pit, and they figured out, they tried to wonder, how can we kill him? And even as he begged to let him go, they instead sold Joseph to traders who were coming by for 20 pieces of silver, and they lied to their dad about him being killed by an animal. And now it's been 20 years over 20 years. And, and, and Joseph has spent most of that time as a slave. He had been falsely accused, spent several years in prison. And now Joseph's God-given wisdom and leadership has brought him through and God has placed him to be able to help Egypt and the whole region through this famine. That same Joseph is the one who stood before his brothers on their first trip to Egypt. And they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And Joseph accuses them of being spies. He's putting them through a test. And, they, and he says, listen, if you're not spies, then you go home and get your youngest brother, your other brother, Benjamin. And just to make sure you bring this other brother back, I'll take Simeon, one of the older brothers, in custody until you return. Some people think, man, Joseph is acting maliciously with revenge. No, he's putting his brothers to a test to see. Are they still the heartless men that sold him off to slavery? But when they returned from the first trip to Egypt, Jacob was shocked. Their father was shocked to hear that Simeon had been taken into custody and that the, mo the money that they had paid for the grain well, somehow ended up back in their brother's sack. And it was Joseph who secretly did that. And now Jacob says in verse 2, go back to Egypt and get more grain. He assumes they can go without, jo without Benjamin. But the brothers push back. They say, remember dad, we, we, the prime minister of Egypt told us, don't even bother showing up unless you bring your other brother back. I want all of you here together. And this forces Jacob to confront his deepest fears, which also happens to be his greatest idol. Jacob showed time and time again throughout his life, an unhealthy favoritism toward the two sons of his wife, Rachel. Benjamin and Joseph, his two youngest sons. Throughout his life, God was lovingly working to loosen his grip on these two sons. But it was painful. Jacob thought Joseph was dead. And when the brothers lied about him being killed by an animal 20 years earlier, Jacob said, he said, I refuse to be comforted, Genesis 37, 35. No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. 
And then when the brothers first suggested taking Benjamin back in the previous chapter, Jacob says, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. And listen, listen what Jacob says. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow down to Sheol. Do you hear what he's saying? Benjamin is the only one left. He's saying that to ten of his other sons. You see, to Jacob, life without Benjamin and life without Joseph would become to him a living shield, a living hell. That's what he's saying. Life without these two sons would be a hopeless existence, a life without meaning and purpose, only sorrow and death. That is his vision without these two sons. Now listen, to lose a child is legitimately heartbreaking and devastating. It's a loss that takes a, a long time to grieve and to process, and that's absolutely necessary. But that's not what's happening here. Jacob doesn't just love these boys, he idolizes them. He can't imagine life without them. Life would not be worth living without them. And I want to ask you today, what is that thing for you? Where do you find yourself saying to God, give me this or my life will not be worth living? Is there an idol of your heart that you are willing to protect at all costs? That you are gripping in your hands so tightly that it leads to pain in other areas of your life? What is that thing or things for you or person Maybe it's your health. Maybe you've always had good health and all of a sudden things are starting to break down in your body and you feel like without your health, you can't live a meaningful life anymore. Or maybe it's a relationship that's been lost. Someone you once loved is gone and you feel like that's it. That was your one shot. Never be the same again. No more joy. What is that thing for you? Maybe it's a longing for a better relationship. Maybe it's a family that's not dysfunctional. Maybe it's a, a better marriage, a more satisfying job. Maybe it's control, or maybe it's more comfort in life. Listen, mo you notice most of those things aren't bad things. Idols aren't always bad things. In fact, most often, idols are good things that we elevate to God things. It's not wrong for Jacob to love these two young sons. But it was his desperate clinging of them that revealed he didn't trust God with his children. Jacob did not have Benjamin's safety in mind. You see, you could rationalize and say, listen, why would he want to lose his youngest son? Why would he do that knowing that, that some harm could come to him? But that's not what he's thinking. Read verse 6 again here in Genesis 43. Israel said, Jacob said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? It's not about Benjamin. It's about him. You see, idols make us selfish and self-absorbed. This pandemic, and I've said this many times, and I'll keep saying it, this pandemic has stripped away so many things in our lives that we have looked to to find meaning and security and satisfaction. 
And God will often use situations. He will often use trials to expose the idols of our hearts, even when it hurts. And I, and I know it sounds crazy, but it is out of his mercy. He's not doing it to punish. He's doing it to show compassion and forgiveness to us because he is constantly inviting us to open up our hands as an act of faith so we can discover that he alone is the one thing that we must absolutely have for life to be worth living. He does it so he might discover that he's the only one that if we fail him, he has forgiven us. And he's already died. He's the only one who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And to show us that how we relate to the things in our hands will be much healthier if we'll just loosen our grip. Because you see, if we lose that thing in our hand, we can learn, as hard as it is, that God's wisdom and plan is much greater and better and deeper than ours. And then if he allows us to have that thing, we can appreciate it in healthy ways. It doesn't become our everything. The good news here in this chapter is that Jacob does, does in fact learn to loosen his grip. He places Benjamin and all of his children in God's hands. Verses 11 through 14, Jacob says to his brother, his sons, Okay, I relent. This trial is forcing my hands open. It's forcing it. It's forcing me to trust God. But I realize I have to. It's my only choice. And so he says, take all the money, take your brother Benjamin, and then go. And then he says this in verse 14. May God Almighty, in Hebrew that's El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin and as for me, if I am bereaved my children, I am bereaved. Notice, open-handed. I, I leave it in God's hands. I'm, I'm trusting you to El Shaddai, God Almighty, God the one who his name is associated with power and promise and blessing. The word mercy there, may he grant you mercy, that's, that's where, that, that is the theme of this chapter. It's going to show up again in Joseph in just a minute. The word mercy there, the root word is the word for a mother's womb. And, and it signifies, that's what signifies in mercy, this deep compassion, this deep tenderness like a mother has for a child. Jacob opens up his hands to God's sovereign plan, knowing that God is merciful, knowing that God can act in mercy even if he doesn't know what is going to happen, even if Jacob doesn't know what this trip has in store for them. Can you and I do that today? Will you allow God to open up your hand lovingly in his mercy, expose the idols so that you can lay them before him and trust him with whatever is in your hand? Lesson number two. As you seek restored relationships, show mercy by looking for small steps of growth. When Jacob tries to get the brothers to go to Egypt without Benjamin, Judah is the one who steps up as the new leader of the family. And he reminds his dad in verse 5, dad, that's not an option. Remember, Benjamin must go with us. The prime minister made it clear. We don't show up without him. And then he says this shockingly in verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. The fact that Judah is the one who steps up 
in faith and courage is meant to be a shocker to us as the readers. We're meant to be scratching our heads. Judah? Judah is saying this? How, how can this be Judah? You see, Judah was the one who came up with the evil plan to sell Joseph off 20 years earlier. It was his idea. Judah is the one who took advantage of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and then tried to have her killed. Judah repeatedly acted selfish and mean. But here we see a different man. We see the same Judah now acting selflessly, willing to bear the cost to himself to ensure his brother's safety. And if you come back next week and we read Genesis 44 and go through, you're going to see Judah is the one who ultimately stands before Joseph and pleads for his brother Benjamin. What does this teach us? It teach us, teaches us that God has been at work in Judah's heart, changing his heart. It wasn't a complete change, of course. He's still in process. He hasn't yet confessed to his dad what he's done. He and the other brothers have done. He's still covering up a lie. But there's real change here, and that's what I want you to, to notice. Listen to me carefully. It may be small, but small change can still be sub substantive change. Small change can still be substantive change. Meaning small changes matter. Don't write them off. As you consider the strained relationships in your own life, can I encourage you to look for small steps that people are making of change. Look for small steps. That's what mercy does. It shows forgiveness and compassion to someone who doesn't deserve it. I love this insight from Pastor Ian Duguid in his commentary on Genesis. He says what I was trying to say, and he just captures it so well. He says, quote, Sometimes we demand unrealistic levels of transformation from people and refuse to make any concessions until the other person has changed completely. But change is a process, and we can often recognize and celebrate baby steps in the right direction while still acknowledging that the process has a good deal further to go. And then he continues, Sometimes we ourselves are the ones who need to change. We recognize that we are the ones who have sinned and are sinning against those around us, yet we do not have the power to transform ourselves. God's work of sanctification in our hearts is often a slow process in which it is appropriate to recognize and celebrate every step in the right direction. End quote. Relationships are hard and they are messy. That's why I appreciate a book by an author named Tim Lane and Paul Tripp, their book called Relationships. It's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. They are. They're hard and they're messy, but they're a mess worth making. And that's why it's so important that as you engage in relationships, we show mercy by accepting small steps a person makes toward growth. Lesson number three. God's mercy and our mercy can bring about repentance and change in hearts. God's mercy and our mercy together can bring about repentance and change in hearts. God's mercy in this text is represented in Joseph showing lavish hospitality to his brothers. When the brothers get to Egypt, it says that Joseph has them escorted to his home. He hasn't yet seen them. Verse 18, it says that the brothers are afraid. 
Why? Because the prime minister of the greatest superpower in the world at the time doesn't just invite foreigners to his home. They're thinking, oh man, it's about the money in our sacks. The money we found back in our sacks on the first trip. We're done. We're doomed. He's going to take our money and they think, weirdly, he's going to take our donkeys. Right? As if the prime minister needs their stuff. But that's what they're thinking. And when the steward of Joseph's house greets the brothers, they immediately notice, they immediately share what happened with the money. They're honest now. They're not covering things up like they used to. They're like, look, we, we don't know how the money got here, but here it is. We're bringing it back to you. They're showing honesty. You see, there's change in their hearts. What Joseph has been doing to them in this test has started to change their hearts. And then verse 23, look at this, how the steward responds to them. He says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. This steward, this Egyptian steward, offers a traditional Hebrew greeting. He says, Shalom Lakam, which actually in the Middle East is still a greeting in Arabic. Salam Aleikum, peace be upon you. That's amazing. They would, have, they would have heard it in their, in their own language wondering what's going on. It would have set their hearts at ease. And then he says, yeah, I got your money and God put it back in your sacks. In other words, God is uh, the steward is instructing these brothers on God's providential care of them. He's showing them God's mercy has been evident in your lives by how Joseph has treated you. You see, Jacob's prayer is being answered as he speaks. Remember, Jacob prayed, May God Almighty show you mercy by this man. And they're being shown it. God Almighty is doing it. They're, they're, being, they're experiencing mercy. And it was precisely God's mercy shown through Joseph that brought about change in their hearts. Then the servant brings out Simeon, their older brother, who had been in Egypt for almost two years, and they experienced a wonderful reunion. All the brothers are back together again for the first time in, in decades. And then they're told, oh, by the way, you're going to have a, a massive feast. The prime minister is preparing a feast for you. Imagine in the midst of a famine hearing, you're going to have a buffet. Right? Imagine going to Golden Corral or whatever the best buffet, whatever Chinese buffet you love, and you're thinking, man, I just wish I could go there today. Sorry. But well, one day, and that was this day for them. And when Joseph finally meets them, he comes out. Notice what he does. The brothers immediately, verse 26, verse 25, they, they give him the presents. They show him all the, the money and the presents that his father uh, brought for them. And notice verse 26, and then they all bow down. In verse 28, it says it again. They prostrated themselves before Joseph. What does that tell you? What is that meant to, to remind you of? Way back earlier when we were introduced to Joseph, his very first dream, he said, I had a dream that all of my brothers would bow down to me. And it took over 20 years for God to make good on that prophecy. But here it is. 
20 years of Joseph wondering, God, did I make that up? Was that even accurate? Well, what's going on? 20 years spent in prison and, and as a slave and in Egypt and away from his family. And now, right now, can you imagine the emotion when God finally fulfills what he told Joseph would happen 20 years ago as all of his brothers bow before him in humility, in reverence? Joseph asks, notice what he asks them. He says, tell me about your father, the, the old man you live with. Is, is, he, is he well? Is he even still alive? Oh man, he loves his family. He wants to know about his dad. And they say, yes, he's relieved to know our father is well. He's, he's, he's alive. Yes, he's fine. And then, and then, Joseph finally lays eyes on Benjamin. His full blood brother. He sees him after 20 plus years. He says, is this your youngest brother? He realizes in that moment, no harm has come to Benjamin. He realizes the brothers didn't treat Benjamin the way they treated him. He realizes that Benjamin is okay. He's alive. That's probably why he wanted them to bring Benjamin in the first place. Tell me, are you the heartless men? And did you mistreat Benjamin just like you mistreated me? Bring him to me. And he sees they, they didn't mistreat him. He's well, his own brother. And notice what it says in verse 30. His compassion grew warm for his brother and he left to weep. You see, God's mercy is bringing healing and change not only in in the brother's hearts, but in Joseph's heart too. He could have lived with 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 bitterness and resentment towards his brothers, but all but it's 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 warming. The word compassion in verse 30 is the word mercy. Same Hebrew word as Jacob prayed, may God Almighty show you mercy. There it is again, mercy. His mercy grew warm to his brothers. He started to experience compassion and tenderness and forgiveness to his brothers who didn't deserve it, to his brothers whom he could punish if he wanted. Joseph is full of sorrow and joy. Likely sorrow over the last few decades and everything that he lost. And yet joy that right now before his eyes, things are starting to be restored. I think that's why he weeps. I think that's why he leaves. He's not ready to reveal himself. There's still a little bit more he needs to do to ensure his brothers have experienced a true repentance and change. But God's healing. God is healing the deep wounds in Joseph's heart as he seeks to show mercy towards his brothers. And God will often do that. As we show mercy to others, God is able to bring healing into our own hearts. And it's costly, and it's hard, and I get it. Restoration, reconciliation, and relationships, it's hard. I just want you to be able to to have a glimpse of hope that maybe it's worth it. Joseph is witnessing the transformation of his brothers right before his eyes. Already in this chapter, we've seen his brothers take responsibility for Benjamin, if any harm would come to him. We've seen them, they never would have done that. Who who cares about Benjamin earlier? But now they take responsibility and and they're willing to stand up for him. We see them acting in honesty and integrity by returning the money found in their sacks. And And it says after the meal, even though Benjamin received five times as much food as everybody else, it says all of them rejoiced and were merry. 
God is bringing about change, real change in their hearts. Finally, Joseph seats them down for this lavish feast. And they're amazed because Joseph sets them up in birth order. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, there's a seating arrangement. And he starts naming them down. You sit here, you sit there, you sit there. And they're wondering, whoa, is, is he that brilliant that he can just tell our ages? And they're amazed. You see, he's giving them little hints. There's more than meets the eye than go, that's going on here. He's learning to love his brother again. Brothers again. And then he gives Benjamin five times as much food as the others. Again, this is, this is a test. Will they be jealous? Will they envy their brother like they envied Joseph years ago? Or will they make peace that if someone has more than them, if someone has something that they don't have, will they be at peace knowing God is, is provided for them and exactly what they needed? And they do. There's harmony. They all feast. They all enjoy. There's merriment. There's rejoicing. God is bringing about healing in all of their hearts, including Joseph. He's learning to love his brothers again. Is there something in your heart that needs to change? Is God exposing something in your heart, maybe an idol, maybe something you're holding on to too, 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 too tightly? Is there, or is there a broken relationship that, that needs to be restored, that you need to take a step to seek restoration? God's mercy has the power to bring about that change. And I'm asking you to go to him for help. I know it'll be costly, and the bottom line is there's no guarantee that there will, there, there will be restoration this side of heaven. But this story does give us a hope that restoration is at least possible. That God's mercy is at work in our struggles and our pain. And you wonder, how do I get the power to do that? How do I show mercy when everything in me wants to withhold mercy? Wants to give justice and justice alone? Here's what we need to understand. The only way we're going to be able to show mercy, the only way that we're going to have the, 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 the resources to give someone what they don't deserve is if we look to Jesus, the one in whom God has shown us mercy to its fullest. You see, mercy is made fully available to us in the person and work of Jesus. And Joseph is welcoming his brothers into his home and he's, and he's providing a feast for them. This is a picture of how God treats his people. Joseph is restoring the relationship at great cost to himself. He's rescuing his family from famine, but he's doing it at great cost to himself. He has to forgive them. He has to show them mercy. He has to welcome them. He has to do everything that cost him greatly. And that's why Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. Just like the brothers who mistreated Joseph and rejected him, you and I have mistreated and rejected Jesus. We live our lives from the very beginning of our lives. We live our lives selfishly. Just like Jacob, we cling to idols and we think these are the things that will make us happy and, and in the end they make us miserable. It's our sin that has broken the relationship off between us and God. And it's our sin that continues to cause broken relationships here on earth. It's our sin that separates us from God. That's what Paul says. We stand guilty. Ephesians 1, 2 through 5. The very first verse, Ephesians 2, 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. D listen, if you're li if you're listening to me and you're not a Christian, don't just think Christianity is about making bad people good. No. 
The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We literally, we are spiritually dead. We've rejected God. We live as enemies of God because we want to live as if we're in control. But the good news of the gospel, what Jesus came to do, notice, but God being rich in what? Mercy. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. You see what God was doing? God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. He came down and lived among us to show us what God is like, even when, we, even when he knew the pain and suffering he would have to endure. We rejected God. We didn't worship him as the true God. And Jesus, just like Joseph, when he came to the end of his life, he, he looked over Jerusalem and he too wept over his brothers, over his brothers and sisters, the very people he came to rescue and who had rejected him, he wept over them. And then Jesus went to the cross, bearing all of our guilt and our selfishness, just like Joseph had to bear that of his brothers. Jesus died in our place. He died the death you and I should have died. He bore all of God's consequences, all of the justice against our sin, and he bore it on the cross. He died and absorbed all of God's justice so that in the most stunning reversal in history, he could offer you and I mercy full and complete. You see, when we repent of our sin, when we decide, listen, this thing in my, that I'm gripping onto is not going to make my life meaningful. I, the only thing who, who I can put in my hand and grip onto and who will never leave me nor forsake me is God. And so I'm going to open up my hand and we, that's repentance. We turn from whatever we're looking to and we trust in Jesus Christ by faith. We are completely forgiven. And Ephesians 2 says we're spiritually made alive. You see, Christianity is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive through Jesus Christ. It costs Jesus to reconcile us to God, but he did it out of mercy. He did it to show us that he could invite us back into the family, not just so that he can forgive us, but so that we can, just like Joseph and the brothers, so that we can dine at his table, so that we can share fellowship with God through his son Jesus, that we might be considered sons and daughters of the Most High God, that we might experience the blessing of life now and eternal life to come. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. And one day, when Jesus returns, and we read this in Revelation 9 earlier, Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, it says in Revelation, he'll make all things new, he'll restore everything that was lost, he'll do away with sin and suffering, which will be no more, he'll wipe away every tear, and then he's going to throw a huge, massive supper. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb, and all of those who have trusted in Christ will be seated at the table, and Jesus will raise a, a cup to toast what he has done, and we will celebrate a celebration that will last the rest of our days. That's God's infinite mercy made available now and made possible for eternity through the finished work of Christ. Have you turned from your sin this morning and trusted in the finished work of Christ? Have you done that? Or do you need to turn to Christ right now, today, and experience the mercy that he offers you? Christian, the more you understand what it costs Jesus to show you mercy, 
the more you will have the ability, the power, the resources to be able to show that kind of mercy to others. That's why we sang earlier, yet not I, but Christ in me. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you because you are the only one who can raise the dead. You are the only one who went to the cross, who was buried, and walked out of the tomb resurrected. And because of your resurrection, you can ensure that we can be raised spiritually now from deadness of sin to newness of life. But we also know that you came to ensure that in your infinite mercy, not even death can separate us from your love. Not even death can prevent us from experiencing the joy of your presence, the fellowship of your presence, and the feasting, the, the, the celebration of, of knowing you now and forever. God, I pray for every Christian who's watching, who's listening, who, who you have been using your word to dig into their hearts. God, I pray that there would be transformation, that there would be a movement towards change, that there would be a, a softening through your mercy, that they might show mercy. Only you can do this, Lord. Only you can restore broken relationships. Only you can bring the strength in our hearts to seek that restoration. Even if it's not possible that we would at least be agents of mercy. God, and for all of those who are still outside of your family, who, who maybe they've heard of Jesus, maybe they grew up in the church, but, but they've wandered away. Jesus, I pray that right now you would show them your arms are extended open. You invite them, come. Come freely. Not because it's free, but because you have done everything required. You have paid the cost. Lord, I pray that those right now would turn to Jesus in faith and accept him as Savior and walk with him as King. I pray that you would work in our midst even as we are separated bring healing and restoration through the mighty power and mercy of Jesus, I pray. Amen.